Chapter Thirteen, Section Four, of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Thirteen, Section Four, Means of Individual Emancipation. We are now in a position to define more clearly just how the American individual can assert his independence and how in asserting his independence he can contribute to american national fulfillment he cannot make any effective advance towards national fulfillment merely by educating himself and his fellow countrymen as individuals to a higher intellectual and moral level because an essential condition of really edifying individual education is the gradual process of collective education by means of collective action and formative collective discipline on the other hand this task of collective education is far from being complete in itself it necessarily makes far greater demands upon the individual than does a system of comparative collective irresponsibility it implies the selection of peculiarly competent energetic and responsible individuals to perform the peculiarly difficult and exacting parts in a socially constructive drama and it implies as a necessary condition of such leadership a progressively higher standard of individual training and achievement unofficial as well as official through the whole community the process of educating men of moral and intellectual stature sufficient for the performance of important constructive work cannot be disentangled from the process of national fulfillment by means of intelligent collective action american nationality will never be fulfilled except under the leadership of such men and the american nation will never obtain the necessary leadership unless it seeks seriously the redemption of its national responsibility such being the situation in general how can the duty and the opportunity of the individual at the present time best be defined is he obliged to sit down and wait until the edifying economic political and social transformation has taken place or can he by his own immediate behavior do something effectual both to obtain individual emancipation and to accelerate the desirable process of social reconstruction this question has already been partially answered by the better american individual and it is i believe being answered in the right way the means which he is taking to reach a more desirable condition of individual independence and inferentially to add a little something to the process of national fulfillment consist primarily and chiefly in a thoroughly zealous and competent performance of his own particular job and in taking this means of emancipation to fulfillment he is both building better and destroying better than he knows the last generation of americans has taken a better method of asserting their individual independence than that practiced by the heretics of the middle period those who were able to gain leadership in business and politics sought to justify their success by building up elaborate industrial and political organizations which gave themselves and their successors peculiar individual opportunities on the other hand the men of more specifically intellectual interests tacitly abandoned the newer worldliness of their predecessors and began unconsciously but intelligently to seek the attainment of some excellence in the performance of their own special work in almost every case they discovered that the first step in the acquisition of the better standards of achievement was to go abroad if their interests were scholarly or scientific they were likely to matriculate at one of the german universities for the sake of studying under some eminent specialist 
if they were painters sculptors or architects they flocked to paris as the best available source of technical instruction in the arts wherever the better schools were supposed to be there the american pupils gathered and the consequence was during the last quarter of the nineteenth century a steady but considerable improvement in the standard of special work and the american schools of special discipline in this way there was domesticated a necessary condition and vehicle of the liberation and assertion of american individuality a similar transformation has been taking place in the technical aspects of american industry in this field the individual has not been obliged to make his own opportunities to the same extent as in business politics and the arts the opportunities were made for him by the industrial development of the country efficient special work soon became absolutely necessary in the various branches of manufacture in mining and in the business of transportation and in the beginning it was frequently necessary to import from abroad expert specialists the technical schools of the country were wholly inadequate to supply the demand either for the quantity or the quality of special work needed when for instance the construction of railroads first began the only good engineering school in the country was west point and the consequence was that many army officers became railroad engineers but little by little the amount and the standard of technical instruction improved while at the same time the greater industrial organizations themselves trained their younger employees with ever-increasing efficiency of late years even farming has become an occupation in which special knowledge is supposed to have certain advantages in every kind of practical work specialization founded on a more or less arduous course of preparation is coming to prevail and in this way individuals possessing the advantages of the necessary gifts and discipline are obtaining definite and stimulating opportunities for personal efficiency and independence it would be a grave mistake to conclude however that the battle is already won that the individual has already obtained in any department of practical or intellectual work sufficient personal independence or sufficiently edifying opportunities the comparatively zealous and competent individual performer does not however feel so much of an alien in his social surroundings as he did a generation or two ago he can usually obtain a certain independence of position a certain amount of intelligent and formative appreciation and a sufficiently substantial measure of reward but he has still much to contend against in his social economic and intellectual environment his independence is precarious in some cases it is won with too little effort in other cases it can be maintained only at too great a cost his rewards if substantial can be obtained as readily by sacrificing the integrity of his work as by remaining faithful thereto the society in which he lives and which gives him his encouragement and support has the limitations of a clique its encouragement is too conscious its support too willful beyond a certain point its encouragement becomes indeed relaxing rather than stimulating and the aspiring individual is placed in the situation of having most to fear from the inhabitants of his own household his intellectual and moral environment is lukewarm he is encouraged to be an individual but not too much of an individual he is encouraged to do good work but not to do always and uncompromisingly his best work he is trusted but he is not trusted enough he believes in himself 
but he does not believe as much in himself and in his mission as his own highest achievement demands he is not sufficiently empowered by the idea that just in so far as he does his best work and only his best work he is contributing most to national as well as personal fulfillment what the better american individual particularly needs then is a completer faith in his own individual purpose and power a clearer understanding of his own individual opportunities he needs to do what he has been doing only more so and with the conviction that thereby he is becoming not less but more of an american his patriotism instead of being something apart from his special work should be absolutely identified therewith because no matter how much the eminence of his personal achievement may temporarily divide him from his fellow countrymen he is by attaining to such an eminence helping in the most effectual possible way to build the only fitting habitation for a sincere democracy he is to make his contribution to individual improvement primarily by making himself more of an individual the individual as well as the nation must be educated and uplifted chiefly by what the individual can do for himself education like charity should begin at home an individual can then best serve the cause of american individuality by effectually accomplishing his own individual emancipation that is by doing his own special work with ability energy disinterestedness and excellence the scope of the individual's opportunities at any one time will depend largely upon society but whatever they amount to the individual has no excuse for not making the most of them before he can be of any service to his fellows he must mould himself into the condition and habit of being a good instrument on this point there can be no compromise every american who has the opportunity of doing faithful and fearless work but who proves faithless to it belongs to the perfect type of the individual anti-democrat by cheapening his own personality he has cheapened the one constituent of the national life over which he can exercise most effectual control and thereafter no matter how superficially patriotic and well-intentioned he may be his words and his actions are tainted and are in some measure corrupting in their social effect the question will however immediately arise as to the nature of this desirable individual excellence it is all very well to say that a man should do his work competently faithfully and fearlessly but how are we to define the standard of excellence when a man is seeking to do his best how shall he go about it success in any one of these individual pursuits demands that the individual make some sort of a personal impression he must seek according to the nature of the occupation a more or less numerous popular following the excellence of a painter's work does not count unless he can find at least a small group of patrons who will admire and buy it the most competent architect can do nothing for himself or for other people unless he attracts clients who will build his paper houses the playwright needs even a larger following if his plays are to be produced he must manage to amuse and to interest thousands of people and the politician most of all depends upon a numerous and faithful body of admirers of what avail would his independence and competence be in case there were nobody to accept his leadership it is not enough consequently to assert that the individual must emancipate himself by means of excellent and disinterested work his emancipation has no meaning his career as an individual no power except with the support of a larger or smaller following 
admitting the desirability of excellent work what kind of workmanlike excellence will make the individual not merely independent and incorruptible but powerful in what way and to what end shall he use the instrument which he is to forge and temper for his own individual benefit and hence for that of society these questions involve a real difficulty and before we are through they must assuredly be answered but they are raised at the present stage of the discussion for the purpose of explicitly putting them aside rather than for the purpose of answering them the individual instruments must assuredly be forged and tempered to some good use but before we discuss their employment let us be certain of the instruments themselves whatever that employment may be and however much of a following its attainment may demand the instrument must at any rate be thoroughly well made and in the beginning it is necessary to insist upon merely instrumental excellence because the american habit and tradition is to estimate excellence almost entirely by results if the individual will only obtain his following there need be no close scrutiny as to his methods the admirable architect is he who designs an admirably large number of buildings the admirable playwright is he who by whatever means makes the hearts of his numerous audiences palpitate the admirable politician is he who succeeds somehow or anyhow in gaining the largest area of popular confidence this tradition is the most insidious enemy of american individual independence and fulfillment instead of declaring as most americans do that a man may if he can do good work but that he must create a following we should declare that a man may if he can obtain a following but that he must do good work when he has done good work he may not have done all that is required of him but if he fails to do good work nothing else counts the individual democrat who has had the chance and who has failed in that essential respect is an individual sham no matter how much of a shadow his figure casts upon the social landscape the good work which for his own benefit the individual is required to do means primarily technically competent work the man who has thoroughly mastered the knowledge and the craft essential to his own special occupation is by way of being the well-forged and well-tempered instrument little by little there have been developed in relation to all the liberal arts and occupations certain tested and approved technical methods the individual who proposes to occupy himself with any one of these arts must first master the foundation of knowledge of formal traditions and of manual practice upon which the superstructure is based the danger that a part of this fund of technical knowledge and practice may at any particular time be superannuated must be admitted but the validity of the general rule is not affected thereby the most useful and effective dissenters are those who were in the beginning children of the faith the individual who is too weak to assert himself with the help of an established technical tradition is assuredly too weak to assert himself without it the authoritative technical tradition associated with any one of the arts of civilization is merely the net result of the accumulated experience of mankind in a given region that experience may or may not have been exhaustive or adequately defined but in any event its mastery by the individual is merely a matter of personal and social economy it helps to prevent the individual from identifying his whole personal career with unnecessary mistakes it provides him with the most natural and serviceable vehicle for self-expression 
it supplies him with a language which reduces to the lowest possible terms the inevitable chances of misunderstanding it is society's nearest approach to the authentic standard in relation to the liberal arts and occupations and just so far as it is authentic society is justified in imposing it on the individual the perfect type of authoritative technical methods are those which prevail among scientific men in respect to scientific work the perfect type of authoritative technical methods are those which prevail among scientific men in respect to scientific work no scientist as such has anything to gain by the use of inferior methods or by the production of inferior work there is only one standard for all scientific investigators the highest standard and so far as a man falls below that standard his inferiority is immediately reflected in his reputation some scientists make of course small contributions to the increase of knowledge and some make comparatively large contributions but just in so far as a man makes any contribution at all it is a real contribution and nothing makes it real but the fact that it is recognized in the hall of science exhibitors do not get their work hung upon the line because it tickles the public taste or because it is uplifting or because the jury is kindly and wishes to give the exhibitor a chance to earn a little second-rate reputation the same standard is applied to everybody and the jury is incorruptible the exhibit is nothing if not true or by way of becoming or being recognized as true a technical standard in any one of the liberal or practical arts cannot be applied as rigorously as can the standard of scientific truth because the standard itself is not so authentic in all these arts many differences of opinion exist among masters as to the methods and forms which should be authoritative and in so far as such is the case the individual must be allowed to make many apparently arbitrary personal choices the fact that a man has such choices to make is the circumstance which most clearly distinguishes the practice of an art from that of a science but this circumstance instead of being an excuse for technical irresponsibility or mere eclecticism should on the contrary stimulate the individual more competently to justify his choice in his work he is fighting the battle not merely of his own personal career but of a method of a style of an idea or of an ideal the practice of the several arts need not suffer from diversity the practice of the several arts need not suffer from diversity of standard provided the several separate standards are themselves incorruptible in all the arts and by the arts i mean all disinterested and liberal practical occupations the difficulty is not that sufficiently authoritative standards do not exist but that they are not applied the standard which is applied is merely that of the good enough the juries are either too kindly or too lax or too corrupted by the nature of their own work they are prevented from being incorruptible about the work of other people by a subconscious apprehension of the fate of their own performances in case similar standards were applied to themselves just in so far as the second-rate performer is allowed to acquire any standing he inevitably enters into a conspiracy with his fellows to discourage exhibitions of genuine and considerable excellence and of course to a certain extent he succeeds by the waste which he encourages of good human appreciation by the confusion which he introduces into the popular critical standards 
he helps to effect a popular discrimination against any genuine superiority of achievement. Individual independence and fulfillment is conditioned on the technical excellence of the individual's work, because the most authentic standard is for the time being, constituted by excellence of this kind. An authentic standard must be based either upon acquired knowledge or an accepted ideal. Americans have no popularly accepted ideals, which are anything but an embarrassment to the aspiring individual. In the course of time some such ideals may be domesticated, in which case the conditions of individual excellence would be changed. But we are dealing with the present and not with the future. Under current conditions the only authentic standard must be based, not upon the social influence of the work, but upon its quality. And a standard of this kind, while it falls short of being complete, must always persist as one indispensable condition of final excellence. The whole body of acquired technical experience and practice has practically the same authority as any other body of knowledge. The respect it demands is similar to the respect demanded by science in all its forms. In this particular case the science is neither complete nor entirely trustworthy, but it is sufficiently complete and trustworthy for the individual's purpose, and can be ignored only at the price of waste, misunderstanding, and partial inefficiency and sterility. A standard of uncompromising technical excellence contains, however, for the purpose of this argument, a larger meaning than that which is usually attached to the phrase. A technically competent performance is ordinarily supposed to mean one which displays a high degree of manual dexterity, and a man who has acquired such a degree of dexterity is also supposed to be the victim of his own mastery. No doubt such is frequently the case, but in the present meaning the thoroughly competent individual workman becomes, necessarily, very much more of an individual than any man can be, who is merely the creature of his own technical facility and preoccupation. I have used the word art not in the sense merely of fine art, but in the sense of all liberal and disinterested practical work, and the excellent performance of that work demands certain qualifications, which are common to all the arts as well as peculiar to the methods and materials of certain particular arts and crafts. These qualifications are both moral and intellectual. They require that no one shall be admitted to the ranks of thoroughly competent performers, until it is morally and intellectually, as well as scientifically and manually, equipped for excellent work, and these appropriate moral and intellectual standards should be applied, as incorruptibly as those born of specific technical practices. A craftsman whose merits do not go beyond technical facility is probably deficient, in both the intellectual and moral qualities essential to good work. The rule cannot be rigorously applied, because the boundaries between high technical proficiency and some very special examples of genuine mastery are often very indistinct. Still, the majority of craftsmen who are nothing more than manually dexterous are rarely either sincere or disinterested in their personal attitude towards their occupation. They have not made themselves the sort of moral instrument which is capable of eminent achievement, and whenever unmistakable examples of such a lack of insincerity and conviction are distinguished, they should, in the interest of a complete standard of special excellence, meet with the same reprobation as would manual incompetence. It should not be inferred, however, that the standard of moral judgment applied to the individual in the performance of his particular work 
is identical with a comprehensive standard of moral practice. A man may be an acceptable individual instrument in the service of certain of the arts, even though he be in some other respects a tolerably objectionable person. A single-minded and disinterested attempt to obtain mastery of any particular occupation may in specific instances force a man to neglect certain admirable and in other relations essential qualities. He may be a faithless husband, a treacherous friend, a sturdy liar, or a professional bankrupt, without necessarily interfering with the excellent performance of his special job. A man who breaks a road to individual distinction by such questionable means may always be tainted, but he is a better public servant than would be some comparatively impeccable non-entity. It all depends on the nature and the requirements of the particular task, and the extent to which a man has really made sacrifices in order to accomplish it. There are many special jobs which absolutely demand scrupulous veracity, loyalty in a man's personal relations, or financial integrity. The politician who ruins his career in climbing down a waterspout, or the engineer who prevents his employers from trusting his judgment and conscience in money matters, cannot plead in extenuation any other sort of instrumental excellence. They have deserved to fail, because they have trifled with their job. And it may be added that serious moral delinquencies are usually grave hindrances to a man's individual efficiency. From the intellectual point of view, also technical competence means something more than manual proficiency. Just as the master must possess those moral qualities essential to the integrity of his work, so he must possess the corresponding intellectual qualities. All the liberal arts require, as a condition of mastery, a certain specific and considerable power of intelligence. And this power of intelligence is to be sharply distinguished from all-round intellectual ability. From our present point of view, its only necessary application concerns the problems of a man's special occupation. Every special performer needs the power of criticizing the quality and the subject matter of his own work. Unless he has great gifts or happens to be brought up and trained under peculiarly propitious conditions, his first attempts to practice his art will necessarily be experimental. He will be sure to commit many mistakes, not merely in the choice of alternative methods and the selection of his subject matter, but in the extent to which he personally can approve or disapprove of his own achievements. The thoroughly competent performer must at least possess the intellectual power of profiting from this experience. A candid consideration of his own experiments must guide him in the selection of the better methods, in the discrimination of the more appropriate subject matter, in the avoidance of his own peculiar failings, and in the cultivation of his own peculiar strength. The technical career of the master is, up to a certain point, always a matter of growth. The technical career of the second-rate man is always a matter of degeneration or, at best, of repetition. The former brings with it its own salient and special form of enlightenment, based upon the intellectual power to criticize his own experience, and the moral power to act on his own acquired insight. To this extent he becomes more of a man by the very process of becoming more of a master. The intellectual power required to criticize one's own experience with a formative result will of course vary considerably in different occupations. Technical mastery of the occupation of playwriting, criticism, or statesmanship will require more specifically intellectual qualities than will be demanded by the competent musician or painter. 
but no matter how much intelligence may be needed, the way in which it should be used remains the same. Mere industry, aspiration, or a fluid run of ideas make as meager an equipment for a politician, a philanthropist, or a critic as they would for an architect. And absolutely the most dangerous mistake which an individual can make is that of confusing admirable intentions expressed in some inferior manner with genuine excellence of achievement. If such men succeed, they are corrupting in their influence. If they fail, they learn nothing from their failure, because they are always charging up to the public, instead of to themselves, the responsibility for their inferiority. The conclusion is, at the present time, an individual American's intentions and opinions are of less importance than his power of giving them excellent and efficient expression. What the individual can do is make himself a better instrument for the what the individual can do is make himself a better instrument for the practice of some serviceable art, and by so doing he can scarcely avoid becoming also a better instrument for the fulfillment of the American national promise. To be sure, the American national promise demands for its fulfillment something more than efficient and excellent individual instruments. It demands, or it will eventually demand, that these individuals shall love and wish to serve their fellow countrymen, and it will demand specifically that in the service of their fellow countrymen, they shall reorganize their country's economic, political, and social institutions and ideas. Just how the making of competent individual instruments will of its own force assist the process of national reconstruction, we shall consider presently. But the first truth to drive home is that all political and social reorganization is a delusion, unless certain individuals, capable of edifying practical leadership, have been disciplined and trained. And such individuals must always and in some measure be a product of self-discipline. While not only admitting, but proclaiming that the process of individual and social improvement are mutually dependent, it is equally true that the initiative cannot be left to collective action. The individual must begin, and carry as far as he can the work of his own emancipation, and for the present he has as an excuse for being tolerably unscrupulous in so doing. By the successful assertion of his own claim to individual distinction and eminence, he is doing more to revolutionize and reconstruct the American democracy than can a regimen of professional revolutionists and reformers. Professional socialists may cherish the notion that their battle is won, as soon as they can secure a permanent popular majority in favor of a socialistic policy, but the constructive National Democrat cannot logically accept such a comfortable illusion. The action of a majority, composed of the ordinary type of convinced socialists could and would in a few years, do more to make socialism impossible than could be accomplished by the best and most prolonged efforts of a majority of malignant anti-socialists. The first French Republicans made by their behavior another republic out of the question in France, for almost sixty years, and the second Republican majority did not do so very much better. When the Republic came in France, it was founded by men who were not theoretical Democrats, but who understood that a Republic was, for the time being, the kind of government best adapted to the national French interest. These theoretical monarchists, but practical Republicans, were for the most part more able, more patriotic, and higher-minded men than the convinced Republicans. And in all probability a third Republic, started without their cooperation, 
would also have ended in a dictatorship. Any substantial advance toward social reorganization will, in the same way, be forced by considerations of public welfare on a majority of theoretical anti-socialists, because it is among this class that the most competent and best disciplined individuals are usually to be found. The intellectual and moral ability required, not merely to conceive, but to realize a policy of social reorganization, is far higher than the ability to carry on an ordinary democratic government. When such a standard of individual competence has been attained by a sufficient number of individuals and is applied to economic and social questions, some attempt at social reorganization is bound to be the result. Assuming, of course, the constructive relation already admitted between democracy and the social problem. The strength and the weakness of the existing economic and social system consist, as we have observed, in the fact that it is based upon the realities of contemporary human nature. It is the issue of a time-honored tradition, an intense personal interest, and a method of life so habitual that it has become almost instinctive. It cannot be successfully attacked by any body of hostile opinion, unless such a body of opinion is based upon a more salient individual and social interest, and a more intense and vital method of life. The only alternative interest capable of putting up a sufficiently vigorous attack, and pushing home an occasional victory, is the interest of the individual in his own personal independence and fulfillment, an interest which, as we have seen, can only issue from integrity and excellence of individual achievement. An interest of this kind is bound in its social influence to make for social reorganization, because such reorganization is, in some measure, a condition and accompaniment of its own self-expression, and the strength of its position and the superiority of its weapons are so decisive that they should gradually force the existing system to give way. The defenses of that system have vulnerable points and its defenders are disunited except in one respect. They would be able to repel any attack delivered along their whole line, but their binding interest is selfish and tends, under certain conditions, to divide them one from another, without bestowing on the divided individuals the energy of independence and self-possession. Their position can be attacked at its weaker points, not only without meeting with any combined resistance, but even with the assistance of some of their theoretical allies. Many convinced supporters of the existing order are men of superior merit, who are really fighting against their own better individual interests. And they need only to taste the exhilaration of freedom, in order better to understand its necessary social and economic conditions. Others, although men of inferior achievement, are patriotic and well-intentioned in feeling, and they may little by little be brought to believe that patriotism in a democracy demands the sacrifice of selfish interests and the regeneration of individual rights. Men of this stamp can be made willing prisoners by able and aggressive leaders, whose achievements have given them personal authority, and whose practical program is based upon a sound knowledge of the necessary limits of immediate national action. The disinterested and competent individual is formed for constructive leadership, just as the less competent and independent, but well-intentioned, individual is formed more or less faithfully to follow on behind. Such leadership, in a country whose traditions and ideals are sincerely democratic, can scarcely go astray. End of chapter 13, section 4